following three baptisms will not be easy, so let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this water, this baptism, this new life. We ask that you also would speak to us through the gift of your scriptures, these stories from long ago that have something to say to us here and now. In this moment, quiet all the voices but yours, that we might hear and understand and apply all that you have to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today's passage in the 10th chapter of Acts is the end of a long, drawn-out story where strange visions and dreams given by God bring two people together, two men together, across a wide world of difference. Cornelius, a Gentile, God-fearing Roman commander, and Peter, a Jew, and a leader in the early church. Standing in the home of Cornelius, surrounded by this stranger's family and colleagues and friends, Peter finally comes to understand why God has been so preoccupied with drawing these two men and their friends and their families together. Listen now for God's word to you and to me from the 10th chapter of Acts. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John had announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter was still speaking or preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Amen. The word of the Lord. Hugh Hollowell is a writer, a speaker, and a minister in the Mennonite church here in the States. For a time, he was also the director of Love Wins Ministries, a ministry of presence and pastoral care to the homeless and housing vulnerable in Raleigh, North Carolina. Years ago, while speaking to a secular audience, Hugh briefly mentioned that he ran a faith-based organization that served the homeless. In that same talk, as an aside, as a throwaway line, he used the example of gay marriage to illustrate how relationships can change the way we think and feel about the other. 
That was all Hughes said about gay marriage, homosexuality, or even his faith. After his presentation, Hugh made a beeline for the bathroom. A few minutes later, while washing his hands, he noticed a guy standing at the bathroom door staring at him. Are you gay? The man asked Hugh. Hugh told him he was not. But homeless people who are gay, you help them, right? Yeah, I do. And you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I am. The man looked Hugh dead in the eye and said, I, I didn't know you could be Christian and help gay people. The man went on to tell Hugh how his own family had disowned him when he came out to them. He also told Hugh that how very religious his family was and how because of them he wanted nothing to do with the church. I hate the church, he said, and everything they have done to me and my friends. I, I can't stand their hypocrisy and their self-righteous attitude. Hugh told him he didn't blame him for feeling this way. After a few moments of awkward silence in the men's room, the man asked awkwardly if he could have a hug. Sure, Hugh said. And with tears in both their eyes in the strangest of places, <laughs> these two strangers embraced. And as they did, the man thanked Hugh for being willing to help anyone, including gay people. With that, he turned toward the door to leave, but then he stopped suddenly with his hand on the door and looked back and said, you know, it's strange. I, I hate the church. You could never pay me enough money to go back there. But man, I really miss Jesus. The apostle Peter began to speak to all those gathered, we are told. I truly understand now that God shows no partiality but in every people, anyone who fears God and practices righteousness is acceptable to God. Now, this idea that God shows no partiality marks a dramatic shift in thinking. Up to this point, God's covenant, God's commitment had been with one people, not all people. The Jews alone were God's chosen, the ones who were awaiting a Savior to set them free. But now Peter realizes everything has changed. God's love, God's Savior, God's Spirit is for everyone. God truly shows no partiality. And what causes Peter to have this epic realization is a God-ordained collision between two men who prior to this sacred encounter couldn't have been further apart. Cornelius, you see, is an outsider, a Gentile, a commander in the military force that occupies Judea. He is the enemy and strangely, the owner of the house in which Peter is speaking today. Cornelius, the text told, tells us, is also a God-fearer, which is to say he is someone who is curious about God, interested in God. He may work for the enemy and have a different political and religious agenda, but we're told Cornelius is a good guy who believes in God and is trying to figure out how to live out that faith. Do you know anyone like that? Anyone who challenges your assumptions about the other? A person who shares none of your political or religious or personal values and yet still tries to be good and in some way recognize the existence of God? Someone who's curious about God but doesn't express that curiosity in the way you would or do? Well, Cornelius is that person for Peter. And God seems hell-bent on getting them to meet 
which is odd. Why would God want a collision between the most Gentile of Gentiles, a Roman commander of the military, and the most Jewish of Jews, Peter, the rock on which the church will be built? Why would God want Peter to do something as unlawful and unclean for a Jew as associating and even visiting a Gentile? And why would God want this earth-shattering realization about God's impartiality to happen not in a sacred, sanctioned, holy space, but in the home of a Gentile, a place as awkward for a meeting as a public bathroom? And it's there, it's there in this traditionally unclean place where Peter realizes this new community he is forming at the bequest of Jesus is a community that needs to make room for everyone, regardless of their understanding of the law or their cultural norms or their political affiliation. This is the last sermon in our series I've been meaning to ask, and today's question is, where do we go from here? As those who are trying to live into this promise proclaimed by Peter that God is impartial, indeed shows no partiality, where do we as a community of faith go from here? Well, to quote the most famous mermaid in history, we need to go where the people are. Thank you for laughing. To the people we see as outsiders, whose passion for God's justice confounds all of our convenient and often insufficient and incorrect labels of them. And let's be honest, this can be difficult for insiders like us who are invested, who care about the way things work and the way church works. It's only a few years ago during the pandemic when Christian congregations here in Richmond were struggling to figure out how to respond to the protests for justice taking place on our city streets. At the time, I served as the interim pastor at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church on Monument Avenue, the closest church in all of Christendom to the Lee Monument. And it was there I saw good people of faith. I saw how difficult it was for good people of faith, for good church folks like us, like me, to see these disturbers of the peace occupying our streets as God-fearers, as people who struggled for righteousness, people who wanted many of the same things we wanted, but who practiced that desire, practiced their faith in unfamiliar and, frankly, often uncomfortable ways. Soon after the Lee Monument was taken down, I was on a Zoom call of local clergy who were eager to use this moment as a springboard for greater reconciliation and peace here in Richmond. When I logged onto the call, I saw a lot of the familiar faces I'd seen before. There was the millennial evangelical pastors who were passionate about ending the injustice of racism. There was the black pastors who were cautious and curious to see where this thing was really going. And there were a few mainline pastors like me trying to figure out how their congregations might participate in the healing of Richmond. But there were two other faces in the Zoom boxes that I didn't recognize, but I'd heard their names before. They were two local leaders from Black Lives Matter. It was an odd coalition of justice seekers, and I'm guessing, and I've confirmed later, this group had never been together before. But what I feared might be an uncomfortable collision of values and practices and ideals and beliefs actually wasn't. God surprised me. God often does. 
In fact, the presence of those Black Lives Matter activists amongst the Christian clergy really transformed the conversation. It broadened the dialogue, and it allowed us to discover all the things that we shared. It was a moment that gave me hope, not just for Richmond, but for the church. It was a moment that made me wonder if that time of such upheaval here in Richmond was orchestrated by God, not primarily to bring down monuments, but to bring people together. God shows no partiality. And as people who follow the one who ushered in this expansive reality of God's grace, we, we got to find ways to bridge the divides between the God-fearing, God-revering, non-church folk passionate about justice, who practice their faith in ways and places that we struggle to accept and understand. We need to bridge the gap between them and people like us, the church folk, passionate people about making the world look more like the one Jesus talks about, and who also are committed to the rituals and traditions that shape and form us. Because it's by bringing these folks together, these seemingly disparate groups, I think when that happens, we reveal and experience the expansive power of God's redeeming love. I don't know if you noticed the complete and utter breach of Presbyterian protocol that happened in today's reading. It was an affront to me. But as Peter offers up his sermon, while he's preaching, I mean seriously, while he's preaching about the impartiality of God, something completely out of order happens. The Spirit of God interrupts his sermon and falls upon these outsiders, these Gentiles, these folks that work for Rome, these people of different values and practices and loyalties, and the Spirit falls on them before they are baptized, before they know the rules, before they conform to our ways of faith. What a powerful reminder of the way God works in the world, bringing people together that everyone else said should stay apart, and then blessing those encounters with the Spirit's presence. This is the way God works, then and now. Today's story is not just a singular event that happened in human history. This is the template for how the good news spreads. Because let's be honest, there are always and there will always be Gentiles that we, the church, struggle to see as part of God's plan. People who don't practice their faith in ways we agree with or even understand. There will always be people who, despite their curiosity about God and God's justice, we have a really hard time accepting and even encountering. And yet I'm convinced, both from personal experience and from what I read in scriptures, that these are the very people God keeps setting us on a collision course with so we can discover just how impartial and loving and accepting God really is. So where do we go from here? Well, we go out there to them. We go to the East End to work in schools that have navigated decades of underfunding and discrimination. We go to young people fighting for equity and equality whose categories of self-definition confuse and confound us. We go to work with other people of faith through groups like RISC to fight more, for more affordable housing and for less gun violence. We spend time with our family and friends who don't believe as we do, vote as we do, and practice their faith in ways we understand. In a time when we are encouraged, marketed to, inspired to huddle up, shrink our circles, 
and only be with people who look like, think like, vote like, and act like us. We, as people of faith, as followers of Christ, as those who believe in God's impartiality, we got to be different. Very, very different. Leonard Nimoy created one of our culture's singular fictional characters, aside from The Little Mermaid. Spock from Star Trek. A key moment in the creation of Spock's identity came during the filming of one of the first episodes of the first series. In the scene, everyone on the bridge was freaking out about some impending disaster, as they often do on Star Trek, and Spock's line was to be one simple word, fascinating. Now, Nimoy first delivered this word, fascinating, in the same excited and scared tone as everyone else on the bridge. The director stopped the scene, pulled him aside, and said, no, don't do that. Be the different one. And that's exactly what Nimoy did, deadpanning the line, fascinating, and creating the Spock that generations have known and loved precisely because he was so different from everyone else. I'm tired, and not just because I have three teenagers. I, I'm, I'm tired <laughs> because of all the division and the hate and the animosity in our world, in our politics, on our streets, in our communities, between nations. There is so much hatred and division and suspicion, and I find it personally exhausting. But if I'm honest, there is something I'm even more tired of than all of that. And that's living as if my faith doesn't have something to say about it. Living as if my faith doesn't have a word of hope to give into all that conflict and tension. That really exhausts me. Jesus came to reconcile people to God. And he sends us out to reconcile people one to another. Where? Not in here primarily where we mostly understand each other. But out there where the people are, people who God already knows and loves and accepts, people who can show us a whole new world. Fascinating. Amen.